This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from Switzerland, which is incidentally one of the subjects of this week's episode. The World Economic Forum decided to shift its annual shindig in May from this alpine nation to the tropics of Southeast Asia, specifically Singapore. As you'll hear from my chat with fellow veterans of the West's high-powered economic and political gathering in January in the mountain town of Davos, there are notable similarities between the two countries. Yuna Galani wrote a column this week basically explaining why the Asian city-state is often regarded as the Switzerland of Asia. But getting CEOs and world leaders to travel halfway around the world to attend the summit before the COVID-19 pandemic has been truly locked down won't be an easy feat, Peter Thal Larson, our EMEA editor, cautions. From Davos, we head to Brooklyn, where I chatted with Anna Shemansky about folk and rock god slash Nobel laureate Bob Dylan's decision to sell his back catalog to Universal Music for something like $300 million. It's a sign of just how much the times are changing in the music business, of course, but it's also a cautionary tale for budding artists. Not everybody can do like the bard from Duluth, Minnesota. Give a listen. Okay, great to see you, Peter, in London and Yuna in Mumbai. I thought we would chat a little bit about uh, the World Economic Forum, which was a big story this week. Uh, Yuna, you wrote a piece about how uh, the WEF is going to be held not in uh, in Switzerland, where I'm calling and speaking to you guys from, but instead in Singapore. Um, this has some, it's pretty interesting. It's just going to be for one year. That's what they say in May, right? So it's not going to be a permanent relocation from Davos to Singapore. But I, your piece was quite well read, and it seemed to be that one of the things you said that was most interesting, you know, was was the way that Singapore, in some ways, fashions itself as the Switzerland of the East. Uh, what? How do, how do you how do you see that? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a, a bad approximation in many ways. Um, you know, like its European counterpart, it's an ultra clean, super convenient. Ex, you know, it's got exceptionally high standards for public services. You know, like Switzerland, it's a you know, both countries have a small population. Singapore is something like barely six million people. And both punch well above their weight when it comes to things, especially in finance. So, you know, I, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, uh, Singapore has a thriving wealth management industry. And, you know, they really tried to capitalize on Switzerland's pain after the global financial crisis when Switzerland's banking giants, UBS and Credit Suisse, were fined $3 billion by the U.S. authorities for enabling tax evasion. So they also have that kind of that kind of cachet too. And that push to court private wealth has had its problems too. You know, some of the Singaporean um, uh, branches of uh, 
uh, foreign banks, Swiss banks actually, have had to be have had to um, have run into trouble because they got caught up in the one MDB money laundering scandal. So you know, like there, there have been like the Switzerland of the East mantle has its kind of negatives, but obviously now they're they're getting a, a big positive too because they get to host this really iconic global gathering of the you know the global elite. Right, and and I imagine that they would they'd angle to do that on a more regular basis, even though I. I think the World Economic Forum said that they plan to go back to Davos in 22. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's sort of, they have held it in other places before, but I think, you know, in this case, it's it's just a profound shift because you are following the money. I mean, we all know that the next class of billionaires are in Asia. In fact, Asia is already home to the largest population of billionaires. It has 831 billionaires. That's about 40% of the total billionaire population. Um, you know, they have $10.2 trillion of wealth. So, you know, I, I kind of feel that if the WEF, if the World Economic Forum is about um, that sort of finance, the economy, uh, you know, it's, it's a natural home in the longer term. Yeah, Peter, you've, uh, you've been to Singapore, of course, and you've been to many a, a World Economic Forum. Um, what do you think people will go to this one in May? Well, I think it's an interesting question. I mean, to riff off Huna's point a bit, I mean, it's also, uh, I think it's, 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 a, it's following the money, but it's also following the successful healthcare systems, right? I mean, it's interesting that in, a, in the middle of a global pandemic, that Switzerland, which has traditionally been a sort of safe place, uh, you know, from war and various other things, is considered to be not safe enough for people to go there. Um, but actually, Singapore is. So, um, you know, I think that's also that, that's sort of a, a sort of a confirmation that, that, you know, kind of countries further to the east have been better at handling this than us in the west. Um, will people go? I mean, it's a long way, you know, particularly if you're going from the US. I mean, Singapore, that's not an easy uh, that's not an easy journey. So I think that probably means that that, that will probably discourage some of the attendees. I mean, there is also, obviously, we have a new administration uh, in, coming in in the U.S. And, and normally Davos in January clashes with the inauguration. And so in the past, that's been uh, a bit of a problem. But this is going to be in May. So the new Biden administration will be in place. They might want to send some people to kind of, you know, reinforce the message that America is different, you know, that, that this administration is different than the previous administration. So that might and, and obviously, if the, if, if the administration goes, then also that tends to lure other sort of senior people over. So that might have a, a benefit. But uh, I think, you know, particularly after a year when a lot of people have, have kind of reassessed their travel, the prospect of getting on a plane for, you know, 16 hours or however long it is to get from, from, from the East Coast of the U.S. to Singapore is going to, uh, I, I think that will put some people off. Of course, presumably, uh, you, not only does Singapore has had, had an extraordinary record during the pandemic, in terms of keeping deaths down and reinfection rates incredibly low. But this is the World Economic Forum. These are the world's economic and financial elite. So surely they're all going to be vaccinated, uh, you know, well in advance of the rest of the uh, of society. Yeah, I mean, I think they 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 might well be. But um, and, you know, maybe the travel time won't be such a problem because, you know, once you get to Singapore, you just leave the airport and you're in Singapore, you know, you're in the center. And like, you know, it's not like you have to trek up the mountain or, you know, get your private jet up the, up the slopes. But I mean, I think in terms of I mean, will they come? I mean, they might just not come because it's 
it's just not the most, same dynamic affair that it usually is. You know, normally you have 3,000 official delegates at Davos and up to 30,000 people in total because there's this huge crowd of hangers-on. Um, and so, like, I just really don't see Singapore welcoming that level of numbers at all. Um, this is a very risk-averse very cautious nation. If you fly into there at the moment, you do have to do the mandatory two weeks of quarantine. Um, and I don't think they are going to be that willing to give up their virus, you know, hard fought virus gains to just, you know, allow in a lot of people. And so I think um, I think it's just going to be a less less dynamic and less fun event. And I think, unfortunately, some of it they're talking, you know, a lot of the chatter in Singapore is that this is going to be, you know, also a more virtual event, which you know, just doesn't sound like any fun at all. I mean, I can't imagine doing Zoom Zoom Davos meetings or Zoom WEF meetings. Sounds really boring, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Peter, they did the, the, the WEF did, of course, move um, sort of out of solidarity um, in part in 2002 to New York City after the, the, the attacks on 9-11. You were there. What was that? What was your experience there? I mean, this is New York City, which is not quite the same as Singapore, but it's certainly more like Singapore than Davos. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Um, it was it was weird, I have to say. I mean, the thing that I my overriding it's quite a long time ago now, but my overriding memory of it is just the extreme levels of security that they had, um, which I guess was understandable given what had just happened. But um, I think, and, and you know, it was sort of a bit disjointed because again, I think people were people were probably a bit more cautious about traveling. So it didn't have the same kind of numbers. But I think, I think the other thing you've got to bear in mind, you know, one of the, the appeals of, of Davos, Davos is that, you know, it takes a, it's an effort for everybody to get up the mountain in Switzerland in January. Um, and sort of once you're there, you may as well stick around for sort of, you know, three or four or five days. And also, you know, all the hotel rooms and everything you kind of have to book for the duration of the uh, of, of the event so people sort of you know it's a kind of a they, they've spent the money and they they sort of feel like they should they should stick around and so you have a sort of captive audience in this very small alpine village and um i think if you transpose it to a, a big in, interconnected city like new york or like singapore then it's much easier for people to fly in and fly out or, or even they might already be based there and come in for an afternoon and then go away again so you lose that sort of sense of of everybody being being in a, in, a, in a different place and being there for a specific period of time. So I think that will be, you know, on top of all the other challenges that we've mentioned, um, I think I think that will be one of the challenges. There'll be a temptation, particularly for people, delegates from Asia, to just go for a day and then leave again. Right. And then, but, but, but it is far enough away from Europe or the United States or Latin America, of course, to get, once you get there, to hunker down for a couple of days. So, I mean, Yuna, I haven't been to Singapore in a few years, but it's. I, I'm just trying to imagine how you recreate that promenade, as it were, of, of Davos, that sort of village feel where everyone's taking out the front space, the storefronts, and, you know, they've turned them into, you know, party spaces and fondue spots and that kind of thing. How, um, you know, how is that? Is, is Singapore, like, going to, does it, infrastructurally, will it work? I mean, also, it's it's hot. It's warm. I mean, it's humid. It's a completely different feel than the, the frigid mountains of, of Graubünden. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's going to be uh, rubber flip-flops and not crampons. But I mean, I think that, yeah, you can definitely imagine them turning. I mean, if I was if I was designing the World Economic Forum in Singapore, I would put it on the Marina Bay promenade. I would sort of section off the whole area and it'd be like a big kind of outdoor 
fun conference and you'd have like uh, umbrellas instead of snowshoes. But um, but I think that in reality, I don't know, I, I suspect that they'd probably want to keep it much more confined. It might be in a kind of big, boring conference center or in a big sort of one particular hotel. I'm not sure how you section off a huge part of this sort of main central business district. So I think that's, um, you know, I, I think they could do it. I think they have a good a shot as anywhere do it to do it. Um, uh, but I just think, you know, there's just so many challenges and I just don't think that you'd have the same amount of people turning up. I mean, the other thing to, to mention, of course, is that May feels a bit ambitious still. Um, I know that sort of a lot of people will get a vaccine uh, quite quickly, but I mean, you know, it sort of feels like the World Economic Forum wants to be the first to have the, the first big global in-person chinwag. But the but I just feel like it's, uh, you know, they're, they're skirting so close to sort of time, the vaccine rollout timetable that I'm just not sure it will work. Right, right. And they might and have to move it again. I mean, I guess, that, that you know, to sort of wrap it up, the other question I'd have is, um, you, you made all the comparisons with Switzerland, whether it's financial markets, whether it's asset management, whether it, and there's a sort of sense of neutrality, that kind of thing. But what Switzerland does have is freedom of speech. Singapore is known in our industry, of course, for um, it's a it's a precarious place to be a journalist often. I mean, it's, and it, I'm just wondering how that plays into this. Uh, it's also it's also known for caning people. Right. Wasn't there like they're like, you know, it's still kind of got that authoritarian vibe. Um, how, do you think they'll have to relax that in some way, Peter? I mean, to be honest, I think the authoritarian vibe has relaxed quite a lot already. I mean, it is true that sort of the ruling elites there take a dim view of, of people who are kind of um, especially hostile towards the, the government. But um, I mean, other than that, I think, you know, um, it's it, it's pretty it's pretty open and pretty and pretty relaxed and much more relaxed than it, than the sort of the, the stereotype of Singapore as the kind of like, you know, sort of place ruled by the by, by, by the Lee family and, and, and where kind of, you know, people get fined for for, um, for chewing gum and stuff like that. But I think I mean, that will be a challenge. You know, also I think you know, when you think about the sort of the media, the media coverage of Davos, you know, a lot of it's pretty soft. Right? Um, it's sort of, you know, people reporting on on sort of leaders and, and business leaders sort of saying things. But I guess it will sort of shine a bit of a spotlight on Singapore, that's a global spotlight on Singapore, that, that Singapore doesn't really get that often. And it will be an interesting moment to see how Singapore sh attempts to sort of show itself to the world uh, with, all, with all the sort of various, uh, uh, various challenges that that brings. I think that's a brilliant I think that's a brilliant point but I also think that being a perfect democracy is also not a prerequisite to hosting a successful gathering like this I mean we you know look how many people turned up to like Saudi Arabia's future investment initiative I think it was called it's like the Davos in the desert um you know they've yes, never yes sorry, sorry, I, yeah. I was there for the first one but not there for the subsequent two as but I think Peter I think Peter's than... exactly right I think that it will shine a difficult light on on, on Singapore Okay, look, you know, maybe we'll see you there. And Peter, you too. Uh, okay, guys, uh, talk to you next week. So, Anna, you had an opportunity this week to go through the Bob Dylan back catalog. Uh, <laughs> pretty interesting ride, of course. And and I guess you're, I'm talking to you, you're in Brooklyn, not, you're not positively 4th Street. <laughs> but um, talk to me a little bit about the deal. What, what, what did Bob Dylan do with his catalog? So Bob Dylan sold his entire catalog of over 600 songs to Universal Music, 
while the details of the actual amount of money have not been disclosed, it's estimated that it was in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, I'd seen 300 million or yeah. something around. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of money. It's a so, lot of money. So, but that means he's basically said, okay, here's my catalog. Do what you will with it. Um, times are a change and I'm, I'm going to go use this money to whatever Bob Dylan does with money. Right. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting that this happens right now because we are seeing this just boom in the, um, the market for music royalties. Right. There's a whole bunch of things happening out there, right? So you have, there is a company, uh, there's a fund based or, or listed in London, right? Called Hypnosis or something like that, mm-hmm. which I think you reference. Um, you've got people like, didn't, what, what, what happened with Taylor Swift? Didn't she do something like this? Yeah. So, I mean, Taylor Swift is, that's a little bit of a different and a little bit of a cautionary tale as basically her master recording swapped hands. Um, and, and which she has not been very happy about, <laughs> has, uh, has been very publicly uh, disclosed in the media. She, there was a, a company that had been invested in by the Carlyle Group, and then they sold to this other, um, this other financial firm, Shamrock Advisors, again, for hundreds of millions of dollars. And what's her problem with it? What's the, what's the big deal? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think basically she was upset with the, when, Initially, she didn't have control over her own master recordings because then that meant she couldn't control exactly how her music was used. Right, right. And, th- and then she re- she's now re-recorded some of her music. Is that right? Right, right. And th- this is, goes into these. It's when, when you start to get into the music copyrights market, it is very complicated because it's different things for all these different parts of the process of the song recordings. Right, right. And what, what, why is this all happening now? Is this is this a direct result? I mean, we have, by the way, had certain sort of member of the Bowie bonds back twenty yep. something years ago, where David Bowie sold his sort of it was asset backed securities mm-hmm. that were, um, you know, whose whose div- coupon stream was based on on royalties from his back catalog. Yep. Of course, I mean, so it's, I mean, there is a there is a tradition of um, selling future uh, revenue stream of artistic content. This is different, though, now, because that back then we didn't have things like Spotify and Apple Music, right? Right. Yeah. And, and I think to see, to understand what's happening right now, I think it's important to look back at what was happening before the pandemic hit. So before the pandemic hit, you were seeing this just huge boom in streaming revenues, so which was creating a lot of optimism in the industry that obviously hadn't been there a number of years ago. At the same time, you have still a lot of artists making a significant portion of their income through touring. And then you have a lot of investors who are really looking for steady income streams that aren't necessarily correlated with other more traditional assets who are increasingly interested in music royalties, which is why you had companies like Hypnosis beforehand. Now, when the pandemic hits, you can kind of easily see how that's gonna affect all of those trends. Streaming goes through the roof, everybody's at home, touring income completely dries up, rates are slashed to zero, bonds are providing neither return nor protection. So that means you have a lot of musicians who are probably eager to sell because they need cash. At the same time, you're gonna have a lot of investors who are eager to buy. If I'm a young artist starting out today, which I'm not, of course, what would be my business model? How would it change? What would my plan look like relative to you know, either Bob Dylan back in the 1960s or, you know, anyone else in the last 20 years? 
I mean, at first I'd say that <laughs> younger and less established artists should not take away from the Dylan deal that they should be, you know, taking a lump sum now selling off their future royalties. The Dylan deal is definitely in a class of its own, partly because of Dylan's very unique cultural position. The fact that he has so many songs that are sampled so frequently and covered so frequently. So again, that's a lot of income stream. And the fact that he's 79 years old. Mm-hmm. So if you're a younger artist, you know, you might understand if someone perhaps, you know, needs money right now to pay their mortgage, you know, pay their children's school fees. You can understand, okay, maybe they're going to sell off a song here or there in order mm-hmm. to make a little bit of income. Okay, you might be able to understand that. But what I think they should take away from Dylan is that what he has done is that he didn't sell off his catalog piecemeal. I thought it was interesting that when people were talking about this deal, everybody was saying it was his entire catalog. And it's like, of course it was his entire catalog. It's not like he's going to be like, I'm going to sell Mr. Tambourine Man to this guy and I'm going to sell, mm-hmm. you know, like a Rolling Stone. To, no, he wants to sell to one established industry player who he trusts to control his legacy. So when they're making decisions, they're thinking about it in terms of his entire body of work. Now, we've seen this rise of these financial buyers who are really looking at these royalties as, to a certain extent, just these are income streams. Yeah. No different than any other income stream. And so I think if you're a younger artist who is imagines that at some point you may be interested in the legacy of your work, you have to be a little wary about selling off bits and pieces throughout your career. You might be able to get some immediate income, but then at the end, you know, you may end up in a position where you have very little control over your legacy and financial buyers are probably going to be swapping these things, right? So you can sell it to one house and then ends up, ends up going somewhere else. Yeah. So Okay. Yeah. yeah, so the whole is worth more than the sum of the parts in this case. I would imagine. And 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 also just the fact that there is so much interest right now from a lot of these investors suggests that people who understand this business and who have done a lot of research in this business believe that this upswing is not going to reverse. Okay, so knowing all that, is there so can we see other artists? Do, I mean, if we're going to see artists doing that, it's going to be ones with, as you sort of suggest, large, more extensive back catalogs. So we saw Stevie Nicks do it, of course. Right. Um, we've seen Bob Dylan back in the day. There were the Beatles, Paul McCartney. There was um, um, oh, David Bowie. I guess who's next? What's your choice? Who do you think does it? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, the Rolling I Stones, can't... have they done it? That I don't know. I'd also be wondering about like, a, you know, Madonna, you know, I'm thinking like as you know, you're probably going to first get the kind of septuagenarian generation um, mm-hmm. who I would imagine the kind of singers who were popular in the 60s and later. And then I imagine you're going to fairly quickly start getting some of those artists who were popular in the 80s who may also start doing this. All right. Well, aha, maybe someone. Might. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Anna. Um, be healthy out there. Thanks for your, your thoughts on, on Bob Dylan. Yeah. Thanks so much. That's our show for this week. Thanks to my guests and hats off to our producer, Craig Hedich in New York, as well as Karen Kwok in London. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast exchange on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your audio fixes. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition. Stay healthy. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. 
What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.